The rest of us, let's find our place again in Ephesians chapter 4 and look over with me to verses 29 and 30 in particular this morning. And as you find your way there, let me ask a series of questions. And I want you to be honest with me this morning. When was the last time you truly and deeply grieved over your sin? Was it this week? Has it been this month? Honestly, has it even been this year where you have sincerely and even profoundly been perplexed and grieved over your sin? You know, tragically for many believers, we place so much emphasis on the cross of Christ and the freedom that he gives us that we forget about our sin. Do you ever stop to think about the devastating implications of sin to you personally and of your sin and mine to us corporately? How sin not only uh, really breaks the heart of God, but it shames the name of Christ among us. Well, that's what we're looking at this morning. I recently came across an article by Pastor John Piper, a name that most of us will be familiar with. He's been a very influential pastor for uh, a generation here in the United States. John Piper was writing in this article about his own growing sense of personal sorrow over having grieved the Holy Spirit in his life. And in this article, he says, there are many mysteries in the self-sufficient spirit being grieved. That very thought that an immutable, unchangeable God can be actually grieved by what we do. That itself is perplexing. He says, and there are also many sorrows in those saints who do it. Notice who he says does it. I'll come back to that in a moment. But he also says, and praise God, there is coming a day when it, meaning the grieving of the Holy Spirit, will be done no more. Amen to that. In typical Piper fashion, he goes on to write a poem. If you know anything about his ministry, he's a prolific poet as well. He says, my patient comforter, my God, my life, my breath, my zeal, my soul is doubly sorrowful that I still sin against your seal. And sinning cause my sovereign grief. I know it is your holy way to make your grief serve perfect joy. But I still pray, O bring the day, when in the twinkling of an eye my soul will doubly be relieved, and I will not ever sin again, and you will never more be grieved. It's pretty powerful. Well, friends, we've been working our way through Ephesians chapter 4 over the last several weeks and through the Apostle Paul's riveting description of the worthy walk, that worthy walk of Jesus' disciples in the community of the church. And 
just by way of very brief reminder, we have uh, considered the fact that there is an essential unity in the church. That was verses 1 to 6 of Ephesians 4. And then we looked at this notion of a divinely appointed diversity within the church and gifting of both leaders and laity, both pastors and the people of the church as well in verses 7 to 16. And then a couple of weeks ago, we began to unpack the important principles and practices that differentiate between no life and new life. That is between those who walk as the Gentiles, really a euphemism for those that are unsaved, and those who walk as children of light, that is those that are born again by the power of the gospel, who have now become cherished and changed children of God the Father. It's what Paul has been dealing with here. And perhaps you will remember, if you were with us just two Sundays ago, that I noted in that last sermon that we would like to come back to Ephesians chapter 4, particularly verse 30. This is the verse that we're going to focus on this morning and try to devote an entire sermon on this important and often troubling question, what does it really mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? What does this truly refer to? And maybe just as importantly, what does it not mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? What does it look like in the life of the church, in the life of a particular Christian? And maybe most importantly, how do we seek to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit? Anybody interested in that? I am. I hope you are as well. Do we even need to be concerned? Can we just close the Bible and say, Pastor Dan, this is not applicable to us any longer? I say to you, no. I say to you, Christians only can grieve the Holy Spirit. Let me unpack that as we go forward. Notice with me in the text, Ephesians 4, verses 29 and 30, because we get a little bit of the context back in verse 29. Paul writes, Let no corrupting talk Come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Notice Paul is, is continuing on a sense of thought. And do not grieve the, the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And again, today we're just going to really focus on verse 30. Now, the Greek text of verse 30 literally reads, Grieve not the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. That's what we would see if we were looking in the original manuscripts. This is this command not to grieve the Holy Spirit is a present active verb, meaning that we as individual followers of Jesus Christ, and actually, I would submit to you more Specifically, collectively, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are here called and commanded by God continuously and repeatedly not to grieve His Spirit. This hangs over us in some sense as a loving and terrifying reminder that we were made to be holy as He is holy. In other words, 
There is a way to walk. Remember, walk is a repeated concept throughout the letter of Ephesians. There is a way to walk both as Christians and as local congregations, which grieves the presence. And I submit to you, part of what this is talking about, it impedes the power of God in our midst. And then there is a way to walk that doesn't do that that lets the Spirit of God have free reign among us or in us for the glory of God. And I think our gut response, having come past these very verses, this startling statement, this cautionary command, ought to be to stop and to ask the question, is there anything in my life, firstly, and personally, or is there anything in our lives corporately and importantly that is causing the Lord to be grieved here? Is there anything that I'm offending you with, Lord? Is what I believe Paul is calling us to consider. He says, Grieve not the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Now, Go back in your mind in the Old Testament and remember that the people of God in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation, they grieved the Spirit of God. This is not some new thing that Paul is dealing with. In fact, if you were with us a few weeks ago, you may recall that I suggested that Paul had the Bible on his brain as he was unpacking these New Testament commands. There are several Old Testament contexts and verses that Paul was considering as he was writing this section of Ephesians. For example, in Zechariah 8 verse 16, we find what Paul mentions in verse 25, speak the truth to your neighbor. You remember that, right? And then next in verses 26 and 27, Paul commands the church, be angry and do not sin. And I suggested this is drawn right from Psalm 4 and verse 4. Well, we need to note that this often mystifying and perplexing and very much a sobering expression, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God itself, comes out of the Old Testament. We find it in the Old Testament, and specifically we find it in Isaiah chapter 63. You see, from the book of Isaiah chapter 63, from this great 8th century B.C. Jewish prophet, is related to us God's steadfast love and abundant kindness to Israel, despite their stubbornness, despite their rebellion against the Lord. Remember, Isaiah is writing really primarily against the impending exile. And he writes in Isaiah 63, 7 and following, notably, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted to us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted to them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. 
In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. What an intimate picture this is portrayed. But then read verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his spirit, his Holy Spirit, it says. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Now, those are pretty startling statements. So reflecting back upon Israel's walk with God after the exodus, after they were redeemed out of Egypt, this picture of sin and captivity to sin, before the exile, Isaiah states explicitly, they, the people of old, the Israelites, rebelled and grieved God's Holy Spirit. They were stubborn. They were stiff-necked people. They turned from the living God to serve lifeless idols. They chased after the foreign gods. They placed their hope and confidence in broken nations. Paul says, church, remember them. Don't repeat what they did. Now, likewise, over in Psalm 78, we could go to several places to make this case. In Psalm 78, the psalmist here reflects as well upon the story of Israel's long and arduous wilderness wanderings and the people's contentious, complaint-filled relationship with God their Savior. Just imagine God delivering us from the worst of circumstances, giving us His very promise, even leading us in tangible and, and visible ways and spending our days complaining against Him. And grumbling against him. Actually, we don't have to imagine that too much, do we? I think we do that quite often. Well, that's exactly what Israel did. And in Psalm 78, verses 40 to 41, the psalmist says, uh, How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. So again, let me just make the connection for us. Paul is saying... Just what Romans 15 says, what 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, what was written in former days was written for us. Remember their example. Church, we need to trust and obey the Lord. And he cited specifically the failure of the nation of Israel and the severe judgment that the hand of God fell upon them. As, I think, a bit of divine inspiration, a bit of divine motivation even, for their new life of righteousness and holiness before the Lord. He says, church, do not grieve the Holy Spirit like the nation of Israel did. Well, listen, what does it mean then? That our sinful speech, to make that connection again explicitly between verses 29 and 30, I think Paul is making some direct connection with sins of the mouth, sins of our speech. But really, I think he's drawing upon the entire context of Ephesians 4, particularly verses 25 to 32, where any of those vices, any of those errors that we looked at a few weeks ago could bring grief to the Holy Spirit. He's bringing all this together. And saying that we should not do this. Is there just a specific sin in view here with our speech? Or is it broader? I submit to you that it's broader. Well, the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you might know that name, said that grieving the Holy Spirit, just to define this for a moment, was to disappoint Him. 
to not heed or listen to his holy promptings. This grieving of the Holy Spirit, by the way, is related to, but I think it's different from what Paul says elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, where we are told not to quench the Spirit. And there he's talking about specific prophecies and statements positively given in the context of the church. There's connection, but those are different messages. In reality, the word grief here in verse 30 comes from a Greek word, the word lupeo, which means to be intensely sorrowful, to be grieved or to be deeply distressed. It's interesting, even a bit sobering, that this word is the very same word that shows up in Matthew chapter 26, where Christ himself is there in the garden of Gethsemane that place of the olive press where his own soul was moved to grief and he sweat drops of blood as he considered the crucifixion the next day. But the idea behind this word, again, is just simply a deep and intensely emotional condition or state of sorrowness or distress. And notice it's given in reference to the Spirit of God. The Spirit may be grieved. Charles Haddon Spurgeon described the grief that the Holy Spirit feels over the sins of the church as, interestingly, a sweet combination of both anger and love. Have you ever felt that as a parent, as a spouse? This weird combination of pity, but actual anger, but really it's motivated by love. That's really what the word is, is getting at. Spurgeon adds, it's It is anger, but all the gall is taken from it. See, love sweetens the anger and turns the edge off of it. Not against the person, but against the offense. Love the sinner, hate the sin. In fact, Spurgeon called verse 30, ironically, a very sweet expression. You've never thought of grieving the Holy Spirit that way, have you? A very sweet expression. He says, anger begets anger, but grief begets pity. And pity is next akin to love. And we love those whom we have caused to grieve. His point is that our sin, and particularly, I think he's talking about the the sin of those who profess to know God, who claim to be Christians in some unfathomable and profound way, moves God the Holy Spirit to a gracious grief. A sweet sense of sorrow over our sin. Now lastly here, the French reformer John Calvin adds, No language can, in fact, adequately express this solemn truth. That the Holy Spirit rejoices and is glad on our account when we are obedient to Him in all things, and neither think nor speak anything but what is pure and is holy, and on the other hand, that the Spirit is grieved when we admit anything into our minds that is unworthy of our holy calling. Do you know that God leaps when we love Him? God the Spirit rejoices, even celebrates when we trust in Him. But He's pained. He's grieved even when we walk in defiance against him. I cannot explain this fully, but the scripture puts it right here in black 
And in a sense, we are told here that the Spirit takes it personally when we sin against our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Spirit is offended by that. Now listen very carefully. So many people today, I believe, have falsely understood that to grieve the Holy Spirit means that true, genuine Christians can somehow lose or even forfeit the grace of Christ and their place with God. That essentially to grieve the Holy Spirit means you can out yourself out of God's family. I submit to you, it does not mean that. We need to read this verse in light of other verses in God's Word to understand what God is saying. I think that this misconception that we can actually sin ourselves outside of God's family, this misconception is born out of an unfortunate misreading of this passage. Because Paul is not simply talking to an isolated selection of individual Christians there in Ephesus. He is talking to us, he's talking to me, but he's talking to we. He's talking to the church here. Instead, when he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you, that word you is plural, by whom you, the church, were sealed for the day of redemption. He is talking to us as a whole, the holy church of God. Listen, I I can and have, to my great shame, grieve the Holy Spirit with my sin. That is something that each of us both can and will do. But more to Paul's point, I believe, is we as a church, perhaps a denomination, perhaps a movement, we can grieve the Spirit of God. There's an individual application, but I think Paul's context paints a corporate application primarily. Now let's go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians just very quickly where Paul had first introduced the third person of the Holy Trinity to us. This third person of the divine Godhead, Ephesians 1 verse 11. Where Paul says in that section of this same letter, In him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, the Father who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." Now look, Paul writes there that true believers in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ upon their repentance of sin and trust in Christ are sealed by or with the Holy Spirit of God. And again, this notion of a seal, this concept behind a seal is really twofold. We talked about this more than a month ago. It's it's both a mark of security... And it is a mark of identity. A seal would have marked out those who belonged or who should receive a letter, but it also sealed the contents within it. And so then, Paul hasn't forgotten what he wrote in chapter 1 when he gets to chapter 4. It's only a couple of paragraphs in the original manuscript. Paul says in chapter 4 that the church is not to grieve the Holy Spirit. He could not possibly 
in the space of just two or three chapters now, been referring to the fact that somehow we can forfeit this security. Somehow we can forfeit our gospel identity. I submit to you, Paul is not saying that. He's not talking about that. In fact, back in chapter 4, in the second clause of verse 30, and after the command, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit, Paul doubles down and clarifies what grieving the Holy Spirit does not mean, where he says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's doubling down. Why would he say that if Paul is inferring that we can send ourselves outside of God's grace? Well, listen, the gospel of the kingdom having been arranged by God the Father and accomplished by Christ the Son and then applied to us in faith by God the Holy Spirit in the church, brings to us irrevocable blessings in the church. There are no receipts that we need to hold on to for our salvation. There are no return counters for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear uh, veto coming and repossessing your salvation. There's none of that, church. Paul had enumerated in chapter 2 several of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Look at Ephesians 2.18 and following. Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, For through him we both, that is Jew and Gentile, in this glorious plan called the church, have access In one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I mean, the blessings of the gospel are too numerous to count this morning. So look, I propose to you that grieving the Holy Spirit does not mean losing the Holy Spirit. Understand that clearly. Once again, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens upon our new birth. The word regeneration means to be born again. This brings to us the fullness of Christ's saving righteousness. We have access to the entire bank account of grace upon our salvation. But we begin to draw upon that in small and incremental withdrawals. It's a one-time and permanent gift from God the Father through Jesus Christ the Savior. Paul is saying if we are truly born, we are permanently sealed and provided the fullness of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so here it is. Rather than losing the Spirit, grieving the Spirit is actually focused on this reality of the church who has now received the personal indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The world does not have the Spirit of Christ. We have the Spirit of Christ. So that now our sinful and shameful actions as Christians after we have been saved may cause the Holy Spirit of God to be sorrowful and grieved, particularly when we love our sin more than we love our Savior. When we are okay just to coast in our Christianity. Just think about it. 
And again, we have so many illustrations of this, we, time would not afford them. We are often indifferent, aren't we? On the one hand, or perhaps enraged or incensed on the other by the sins and sufferings of total strangers. How could so-and-so do that? Or, yeah, I've heard that before, and you don't even care about that. But when someone who we know intimately, who we have a relationship with, we care about deeply, sins or suffers, don't we experience something different? Aren't we provoked in our spirits? Aren't we moved in compassion? Who among us hasn't felt the sort of disappointment and bitterness of soul that Paul is getting at here when a child struggles, when a spouse betrays, when a church friend bites you? Who hasn't felt that? That's what Paul is getting at. The Spirit's sole aim in your life and mine is to conform us to Jesus Christ. He is given to us to cast the light of God's love upon the person and work of Christ that we might fall in love with Jesus more and more and be drawn into His salvation. Therefore, whenever we fail to walk by the Spirit, but rather we gratify the wicked desires of our evil flesh, which we still have even as Christians, how could we not but offend or distress or deeply grieve the third person of the Holy Trinity. The Spirit is not indifferent or unconcerned about our Christ-likeness. That's the reason why He's been given to us. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1.16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is not a convenience. It is not an option. It is an identity. We are called to be holy. The Holy Spirit has a vested interest in our joyful obedience to the commands and to the character of Jesus Christ. Now, just to change gears a little bit, I think there's something else we can glean from Ephesians 4.30, and that is implicitly at least, I think there is here seen the divine personhood of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. There is personhood behind the Spirit. In one of Jesus' most shocking statements in the Gospels, found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be given forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. It's startling that Jesus would say that, considering what He did for us. So understand then that the Holy Spirit is a person, more than that, a divine person, who is co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father and with God the Son. The Holy Spirit is not kind of a leftover deity or lesser deity, just as much as Lord, as the Father and the Son. 
Now, in one of the most shocking and sobering illustrations, really behind the person of the Holy Spirit, is found in Acts chapter 5. And as soon as you say Acts chapter 5, most of our minds go exactly to that morbid scene. It records for us the death of two members of the Jerusalem church by the names of Ananias and Sapphira. Tyler, I noted that you're not naming your two uh, twins, Ananias and Sapphira. There's a reason we don't tend to name our kids uh, these names any longer. Well, remember, it was that carnal couple who conspired to sell a piece of property only to grossly exaggerate the grand gesture of giving the proceeds to the apostles. And it led to very grim results. And we can quibble all we want about whether or not they were Christians. I think the point was the warning to the church. In Acts 5, 3 and 4, we read this by Dr. Luke. He says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Not to lie to the Father, not to lie to Jesus, but to lie to the Holy Spirit. Why is it that you have contrived, and later on, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Again, there's a a sense of the personhood of the Holy Trinity or the Holy Spirit here. Folks, we don't lie to things, we lie to people. We might lie about things, but we actually lie to people. Someone said, from this then we would do well to consider the magnitude of our offenses against God's holiness personally. And again, this should sober us up to how comfortable we are with sin. The Holy Spirit is not then a distant deity or an impersonal force. A lot of Star Wars fans in our church But the Holy Spirit is not like that mystical force. No. Rather, the Holy Spirit is a person. For only a genuine and personal being is capable of this level of thinking, this level of feeling and emotion. All sin, friends, all sin is an affront to a pure and holy God. But the sins of God's saints, the sins of His own children adopted and purchased by the blood of Jesus, those that have tasted of His heavenly goodness and the sweetness of His salvation are especially grievous to Almighty God. So then, for example, when we fail to do what Ephesians 4, 2, and 3 says, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, which is the beginning of our context, then we very quickly see how we can grieve the heart of God. It is that very context, this notion that it is precisely those sins, maybe that Paul has primarily in view, which divide or bring disunity to the church, be they errors of our lips or the errant ways of our limbs and our lives, which bring grief to the very heart of God the Holy Spirit. Do we grieve God is what we should consider this morning. Again, it is the very pleasure and power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin and light to the Word and glory to the Son of God in our lives. And so anytime we minimize 
or we excuse, or we try to cover over our sin. Anytime we harbor doubt or cast up you know, aspersions on the goodness of Almighty God, we are very likely bringing grief to the Spirit of God. He can't help but take it personally, nor should he. By the way, just very quickly here, I want to give you this uh, little mnemonic device to help you think before you speak, which I think is good for us. And uh, T-H-I-N-K, each one of those letters will have a statement here. Maybe you want to write this down and practice it. Sometimes we have a little loose lips. T, is what I am saying truthful? Truthful. Is what I'm saying truthful? We need to think about the truthfulness before we say it. H, is what I am saying helpful? Does it build somebody up? Is there a purpose here? I, is what I want to say inspiring? Not is it inspired, but is it inspiring to others? N, is this necessary? (laughs) Be slow to speak, friends. A lot of what we want to say is not necessary to say. Is it truthful? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And I think we need to be reminded today, is it kind? Is it kind? Doesn't mean we only say soft things, that we only say niceties. No. But is it really oriented and animated for the good of the other person? I think we might grieve others with our speech as well. Again, the question, is there anything in your life, be it said or unsaid, whether inner attitudes or outer actions, either in your heart, in your home, in our church, in this community, that you or I would be embarrassed if Jesus showed up? If so, that's grieving the Spirit territory. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> yes. Okay, well, we got to we got to speed up as we head to our conclusion. What are, are we then to do? Okay, so I get it. We've grieved the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced I've grieved the Holy Spirit. What then am I to do? In light of this command, we will clearly commit new sins this week. What are we to do on a moment-to-moment basis? Well, let me give you two practical strategies as we round third and head for home. First, I'll give you the strategy that Paul himself employs in the very next chapter, which is Ephesians chapter 5, and that is we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, rather rest or rely in the Holy Spirit. Paul reminds us in chapter 5 that we are to continually seek to be filled with the Spirit, and insofar as we are filled with the Spirit, we will not grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. To be filled might be expressed, to be controlled by, to be submitted to, to yield your life to the Holy Spirit. All of that is what is, we mean when the Scriptures say we are to be filled with the Spirit. Who would you say is in charge of your life? 
Who's calling the shots? Is it you? Or is it Christ? Is it the Holy Spirit? Well, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is a spiritual way of saying that we are to be led or controlled by or even directed through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in all ways, and at all times. Now, you might have to just take a look at this passage later on, but Galatians chapter 5 is another great text. Let me just punch through a couple of verses from Galatians 5. Paul says in verse 16, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Verse 18 of Galatians 5, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then glance down to verse 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. The simple point here is at any time as Christians that we seek to grab hold of the reins of our life and choose selfish, sinful, or shameful behaviors over humble, obedient, and gracious belief in Christ, we may be grieving the Holy Spirit. Understand, friends, that Christian maturity is not seen in perfection, but rather in persistence. I am holding on to you. I with a little A and an N. That's our part. And I am, all capitalized, God holding on to us. That's sanctification. God holding on to us and us holding on to God. Christian maturity is not seen in perfection, but in persistence. In our practice of welcoming the Holy Spirit to shed His powerful light and love abroad in our hearts, leading us to look more and more like King Jesus. So rely, and then secondly and finally, repent. How do we deal with grieving the Holy Spirit? Well, we agree with Him. We repent. We need to cultivate our own holy sense of godly grief over our sin. I think here of James 4, verses 9 and 10, Be wretched and mourn and weep, James writes. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. If grieving the Holy Spirit means that God Himself feels sorry, or He grieves that He has some sense of sorrow over our sin, then shouldn't we share in this sorrow? Shouldn't we ourselves be pricked when we sin against God? Yes, we should. We should not, therefore, be comfortable with our sin, but rather we must mortify or crucify our sin through repentance and faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapters 6 and 7. Again, I'll just very quickly reference them for you. These are key texts that deal with godly grief. And Paul is writing to that church in Corinth that knew something about needing to grieve over their sin. You know the story of the Corinthians. And he says maybe eight to ten times in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7, he uses the word grieve. For instance, he says in verse 8 of chapter 7, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation 
without regret, whereas worldly grief produces only death. I think it was Oswald Chambers who said that the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when we fear God, we fear nothing else. But when we don't fear God, we fear everything else. Charles Spurgeon again called grief a very sweet expression. Grieving the Holy Spirit a very sweet expression. He says, do not excite his loving anger. Do not vex him. Do not cause him to mourn. He is a dove. And do not treat him harshly or ungratefully, but rather let us listen and be filled with his spirit. Well, friends, we were sealed by the spirit for the day of redemption. The writer of Hebrews closes out his letter this way, and I close the sermon this way. Hebrews 10, 26 and following says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the eternal covenant by which he was sanctified, notice, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. That should sober us up. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So church, may we rely on the Spirit. May we repent of our wickedness. And as the writer closes out, may we never throw away our confidence, which has a great reward, because you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and persevere or preserve their souls. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you for, again, your your grace and the light of your word, the movement of the Holy Spirit to give us understanding here. But this sermon is not done because our life is to be the conclusion. We are to live in obedience to the light of what you have shown us here this morning. And in our war with the flesh, with sin and with the devil, thank you that you've given us both the resource of the Holy Spirit of God and the resource of the very church of God. May we take advantage of both resources for your glory as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.